Welcome back to Will Wright Catholic Podcast. Today we're looking at session two of Praying the Mass, a five-session series on the Holy Mass, how we can pray the Mass better. So today we're looking at the Mass, where, when, and who. If you haven't listened to the first session, I'd invite you to please go back, check that out. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, uh, or willwritecatholic.com. And that'll take you to the Substack, and you'll see it right there at the top. So go check out Praying the Mass Session 1 if you haven't. If you listened to that already, or you've been a listener to Will Write Catholic, it's wonderful to have you back with us. So in Session 2, we're looking at who, where, and when of the Mass, and we're getting a little bit into sacred music and uh, a few other things, but focusing mostly on the introductory rites and walking through them. Next week, we'll get into some mystical body of Christ theology, a little bit more on music, and the liturgy of the Word. So without further ado, let's dive in to session two of Praying the Mass. So last week, we looked at the etymology of the word liturgy, which means a public service, right? The Mass is for the whole world. We talked about the liturgical diversity in the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church of Jesus Christ. We learned that the Holy Mass is for the glorification of God and the sanctification of man. We looked at the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ made present once again by the Holy Mass, and we discussed how we can start putting the cult back in culture. Most importantly, we defined the Mass. And hopefully, if you listen to session one, you have it memorized by now. But if not, here it is again. The Mass is the perfect self-offering of the Son to the Father in the Spirit, in which we are invited to take part. The Mass is the perfect self-offering of the Son to the Father in the Spirit, in which we are invited to take part. And so before we get into the, to the meat of the introductory rites and beginning walking through the Mass, I want to say a word on architecture, gestures, and symbols. And there's a lot that we can talk about when it comes to architecture. And I will be bringing up certain elements over the next three weeks as well. Uh, so I'm not covering everything right now. There's simply not enough time. Uh, but we'll start with this. When the Word of God became man in the person of Jesus Christ... The spiritual met the material. Right? The supernatural shared in the nature of the natural. God took on flesh to share in our humanity. Heaven and earth met. And this has always been the way of the church. The outward shows something deeper inward. And in the sacraments of the church, most especially, signs and symbols become the outward showing of God's inward grace. The hidden realities are made clear through the sacramental. And this is what signs and symbols in the church can do for us. They use the visible to lead us to, sh to, lead us to and show us the invisible. Especially in the Holy Mass, heaven and earth meet. This is not simply nice flowery language. This is a reality. And so this is why church art and architecture matters so much. Good art and architecture shows us the truth and goodness of God. Now, if we look at the basic church layout, a lot of different Catholic churches look very, very different. Uh, but there's a basic layout to them. There's three main parts. The first is the narthex. Then we have the nave, 
and then the sanctuary. Now, the narthex is the gathering place and the appropriate place to, to chat, to share in fellowship, uh, to catch up with, with Father after Mass, these sorts of things. In the nave, this is where the people sit, this is representative of earth. Right? The people are seated, standing, or in pews for worship. In the sanctuary, we have the place where the Eucharistic miracle takes place and heaven meets earth. And this is why the altar is prominently in the center of the sanctuary, Christ standing in the midst of his people. Dr. Dennis McNamara of Benedictine College points out that Preface 5 of Easter in the Roman Missal says this of Christ, quote, As he gave himself into your hands for our salvation, he showed himself to be the priest, the altar, and the lamb of sacrifice. So the altar, which is the center of the Eucharistic celebration, is both the place of sacrifice and the table of the Lord. And on this altar, the sacrifice of Calvary is made present once more. We can think back to what we talked about last week with the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ being made present once more. On the cross, Jesus is the priest because as a priest, he's offering himself to the Father. We can think about the nature of what the cross is, right? That self-offering of the Son to the Father. And he is the altar in a very real sense, because his body is the place of sacrifice. He's the lamb because like the Passover, he is offered in our place. He's the unblemished lamb. And so in the words of Mother Church, the altar is Christ standing in the midst of his people. Even when the altar is consecrated and dedicated, it's anointed with oil as the body of Christ was anointed before his burial. And so the altar isn't a mere table, even a sacred table. The altar is first and foremost the place of sacrifice. The holy victim, who is also the high priest, is offered on the altar, which is his body. And so the Holy Mass makes this reality present to us again. As the, second, as the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy from the Second Vatican Council says, In the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem. So the altar is a living altar in heaven, and the meal we share is a heavenly meal. And so this is why the altar is holy and receives special treatment. It's not a mere table, right? We anoint the, the altar, we incense the altar, we cover the altar, we light candles on and around the altar. So this brings us to a good point to discuss the gestures of genuflection and bowing. And we're going to be talking about gestures all throughout the rest of the sessions of praying the Mass. But it would be very unusual, just imagine, unusual bowing to a table. Just any old table. Imagine you walked into someone's house, you saw a dining table, and you decided to bow. Everyone would think you're a little bit nuts, right? And if that's all the altar is, then we'd be out of our minds to do so. And of course, we know that the sacred table is the place of sacrifice. The altar is Christ. And so Jesus Christ is God himself, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. He's our great high priest. He's the lamb of sacrifice. He's also the king of the universe. And even the worst kings and queens in history were honored by bowing and genuflection. So how much more deserving is our perfect and infinite Lord? 
the proper gesture towards the altar, which is the sign of Christ standing in the midst of his people, is a profound bow. That is a bow from the waist. The bow is a bending of the head or body in reverence and submission. Uh, We can think of a a profound bow as a bow from the waist. We go all the way down. Or a bow of the head or a bow of the upper body. Uh, One definition of to bow, which I really like, is to cease from competition or resistance. Now, how often do we resist the Lord? But of course, God Almighty is so far above us that resistance or competition really ought to be unthinkable. So by bowing, we remind ourselves of who God is and who we are. We're also reminded of what takes place and who becomes present on the altar during Holy Mass. Now, the genuflection, which comes from the Latin uh, genus inflection, those two words, those two parts of the word are knee and then bend. So it's a bending at the knee. And it's a sign of profound respect and adoration. Speaking of Christ Jesus, St. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we bow in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord present in the tabernacle. We bend our knee to the one and only God and Lord of all. The altar makes Christ present in a particular and special way, but the Holy Eucharist is Jesus. So with all of that explanation behind us, we bow to the altar and we genuflect to our Lord in the tabernacle. So as we continue with this series, we'll look at the meanings of several gestures and postures. One of the most prominent signs or gestures is the sign of the cross. And this is a gesture before, um, there's a gesture before the gospel. There's a few other instances throughout the mass of bowing or genuflection. We'll talk about kneeling, sitting, standing, why each of these is important to the sacred liturgy. And today and next week, we'll be looking at the importance of singing and speaking the responses. And uh, we'll also be looking at the Oron's posture, uh, which seems to be fairly misunderstood in the liturgy. We're going to talk more about the Oron's posture when we get to the liturgy of the Eucharist. But if you really pay attention, there's so many different gestures, postures, and signs in the sacred liturgy, and they all have a purpose and a meaning. And so let's let's actually get into the Mass now. Let's begin. So the entrance and the greeting is what comes first. And so first, uh, if your church has a bell that's rung at the beginning, then what happens? Well, we stand up. And, and what do we see? We see a procession of the priest and the deacon and altar servers. And we'll get to what this procession actually is in just a moment. But everyone is dressing up. They're putting on a costume. The priest will wear a chasuble, which covers himself up so that we can better see Jesus Christ, our high priest. And the chasuble is similar to the outer garment worn by the priest in the temple in the Old Covenant. Likewise, the deacon is wearing a garb similar to those who assisted at the temple. His garment is called a dalmatic, and unlike the chasuble, it has long sleeves. So if you see a garment that has long sleeves... This is a dalmatic. This is what a deacon wears. 
And underneath, the priest and the deacon also wear an alb, which is a long white garment. Albus means white in Latin, and so that's where we get the word alb. And then they both wear a stole. The priest wears a stole around the back of his neck, and uh, it hangs on the front on both sides. And the deacon wears a stole across his body from one shoulder to the opposite hip, uh, the opposite side by his hip. And there are a couple other garments, but we'll stick to uh, what's simply seen for now. And there's some other things underneath um, that the priest or the deacon would wear, and those have meaning. Uh, but I want to stick to kind of what we're seeing first, because we're, we're visualizing the beginning of Mass. We're seeing the procession. And so who else do we see? We see altar servers. Now, altar servers traditionally are an apprenticeship for the priesthood. It's a close-up look at the service at the altar, and it's a, a great opportunity for conversations between priests and boys about the priesthood. And so the altar boys will wear cassock and surplice, which is a priestly garment. St. John Paul II allowed girls to altar serve in the late 1990s if there were no boys available. And the clearest case of this would be uh, in like a situation of an all-girls Catholic school, for example. Now, this has been expanded far beyond St. John Paul II's intentions in most parishes throughout the world over the last few decades. In some parishes, to make a, a visual distinction, uh, girls will wear altar server robes rather than the male garment of cassock and surplice, which is really reserved as a clerical garb. And I plan on making a few more comments on altar serving, uh, but I'm going to wait until session five. So stay tuned on that front. Uh, anyway, back to the procession. So what is the procession liturgically and theologically? What's part of the procession? Is there a method to the ordering? Um, well, first, if there's incense at the mass, the, uh, the server with the incense that's called the thurifer uh, will go first along with the server with the little boat of incense granules. Next comes the crucifer who carries the processional cross, which is on a long pole for all to see. After that comes two candle bearers, then the deacon, then the priest. And we'll discuss this more in the coming weeks, but the procession is a movement from the earth, right, the nave, towards heaven, the sanctuary. And it's a presenting once again of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And and we're going to talk about why we use incense at Mass. We're going to talk about the processional cross. We're going to talk about why the candles are there. Uh, and so all of that is coming. So don't worry on that. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at that. But once the priest reaches the altar, what does he do? He, he Well, first he genuflects at the foot of the altar, but then he bows and he kisses the altar. He kisses the altar. And this gesture is called reverencing the altar. In the 1962 Masala Romanum, the prayers show us the deep meaning of the priest's gesture. And, and again, this is from the 1962 Masala Romanum. It says, Take away from us our iniquities, we beseech thee, O Lord, that we may may be worthy to enter with pure minds into the Holy of Holies. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. We beseech thee, O Lord, by the merits of thy saints whose relics are here, and of all the saints, that thou, thou wouldst vouchsafe to forgive me all my sins. Amen. Beautiful. And so this is what the priest is doing when he reverences the altar, when he kisses the altar in the, in the Latin Mass in the 1962 Missal. 
But the same thing is there in the 1970 missile, what is normally celebrated now, what we might call the ordinary form. And uh, all of all of this beauty, this this ancient patrimony that we have, it's not like it was done away with. I know that some people believe that, some people think that, uh, but it's simply not the case. And hopefully through this course we'll see, or these sessions, we'll see that there's a, a, a tremendous continuity underlying all of it. And so what is the very first thing that the priest says at the Mass? He, the very first thing the priest says in the Roman Missal, in the, in the extraordinary form or the ordinary form, is in nomine patris et filio et spiritus sancti, amen. Right? The sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And why do we trace the cross when we begin this prayer and, and really any prayer? Right? Are we dialing the number on the phone and picking it up and saying, hi, God, it's me? Right? No, there's more. There's, it's, it's, it's very deep. And St. Cyril of Jerusalem said this in the 4th century. He said, let us not then be ashamed to confess the crucified. Be the cross our seal made with boldness by our fingers on our brow and on everything. Over the bread we eat and the cups we drink, in our comings in and our goings out, before our sleep when we lie down and when we rise up, when we're in the way and when we are still. Great is that preservative. It is without price for the sake of the poor, without toil for the sick, since also its grace is from God. It is the sign of the faithful and the dread of devils, for he triumphed over them in it having made a show of them openly. For when they see the cross, they are reminded of the crucified. They are afraid of him who bruised the heads of the dragon. Despise not the seal because of the freeness of the gift. Out for this, the rather honor thy benefactor. So there's power in the sign of the cross. In the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom in the East, the sign of the cross is made dozens of times. Now in the West, just as a side note, we generally make the sign of the cross with an open palm, which is a sign of blessing. And in the East, the thumb, index, and middle fingers are joined to represent the Trinity, and the ring and pinky finger are put towards the palm to show the divine and human natures of Christ. Now, either way, it's a great way to begin worship. So what does the priest say next? He says one of a few different greetings, which are all taken from the letters of St. Paul. These are directly from scripture. And the choices are a variation of 2 Corinthians 13, 13. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Right. And then what do we respond? We say, and with your spirit. Right. Well, another option of the greeting is the traditional greeting of just saying, Dominus Fobiscum, right? The Lord be with you. And when we're praying for the soul of the ordained priest, when we say, and with your spirit, we're praying for the spirit of the ordained priest who we believe has been configured through the holy orders and power of the Holy Spirit to Christ in a special way. And so when we say, et cum spirito tuo, or and with your spirit, we're not simply wishing him well, right? We're not saying you, Father, so-and-so. Right? We're acknowledging his priestly soul and the fact that he's acting in the person of Christ, head of his body. And next week, we're going to talk more about this concept of the mystical body of Christ and kind of what that means.
And so next comes the penitential act. Next comes the uh, a few different choices in the 1970 missal for the priest here. But first and, f- and most traditional option is the confitior, uh, C-O-N-F-I-T-E-O-R, the confitior, which is followed by the curiae. And in the confitior, we call to mind our sins. We ask for the prayers of the saints and of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we ask for God's forgiveness. Now, just an interesting historical note, before the 10th or 11th centuries, the asking of forgiveness here was done by the priest in his preparation prayers in the sacristy before Mass. After that point, these prayers of preparation actually became part of the Mass. They became part of the prayers at the foot of the altar. And so in the 1962 Masale Romanum, the first words of the priest after the sign of the cross are intro ibo ad altare dei which I go into the altar of God, right? which begins Psalm 42. And these were normally done in the sacristy before the 10th and 11th centuries, and afterwards were done in front of everyone as the prayers at the foot of the altar. But directly after this psalm, Psalm 42, comes the confidior, so named after the first word in Latin of this prayer, which is, I confess. This is the prayer that says, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, etc., and so the prayers at the foot of the altar after the confidior are then concluded. And then the prayers of reverencing the altar, which I mentioned earlier, are then made. And so that actually sort of begins mass, right? The preparation prayers are over and then mass begins. Well, in the 1970 Missal, which is currently in use, the confidior is not only said by the priest at that time, but by all present. And the prominent gesture associated with the confidior Um, Besides what we're saying, the gesture is the striking of the breast with our fist during the words mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. And this is the gesture of the humble sinner who is expressing his heartfelt contrition. And so we're asking God for forgiveness. And then before the priest gives us absolution at that time, the Kyrie is sung, the Kyrie eleison. The words in English are, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. But these don't really do justice to what's actually said in the Greek. Not really. We kind of have to go back a little bit. And as a side note, right, along with one chant on Good Friday, these are the only Greek words used in the Roman liturgy. Pope St. Gregory the Great implemented numerous liturgical reforms in the late 6th century and early 7th century, but he retained this part in Greek in large measure to show communion with the East. Now, the word Kyrie does mean Lord, and Christe does mean Christ, but eleison does not originally mean have mercy on us. Eleison in Greek is derived from the word for oil. And so literally... It had the meaning of, Lord, pour out your oil upon us. Lord, soothe us with your oil. Now, what's that all about? How did that come to mean mercy? How did that word develop in Greek to mean mercy? Well, oil was used in the ancient Greek world world as a salve for burns and bruises. It was also used to prepare wrestlers before the Greek Olympic Games. It got them all kind of hard to hold on to and harder to cut, right? Uh, accidentally, of course. And so when we say Kyrie eleison, 
We're asking God to ready us for battle and simultaneously to heal our wounds and bind up what is broken in us. And so next time you hear the Lord have mercy or the Kyrie eleison, think about that. Think about, Lord, pour your oil upon us. Heal me. Soothe my soul that is in need of your mercy. And so then we, we do receive absolution. All right, the priest uh, says, may Almighty God forgive us our sins. Um, he makes the sign of the cross. And, uh, and this is true in the ordinary form and the extraordinary form. And so then we move on to uh, the Gloria, the Gloria in excelsis Deo. And there's a scriptural basis for the Gloria, which in English begins glory to God in the highest. And where does this come from? Well, like most parts of the Mass, it's taken directly from sacred scripture. We've just asked for God's forgiveness and received it. And now it's time to praise and glorify him. And we hear this in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. And this is a bit longer passage, but I think it's worth reading all of it just to really get the visual in our heads so that when we're singing the Gloria, we can think about this. So again, this is from Luke 2, 8 to 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, a, was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And so the Gloria is one of the hymns in the Mass, one of the chants, which is properly sung. But why? Well, like the angels in the heavens singing and praising God, so too do we unite our hearts and minds with this action of worship. And here, though, I want to take a detour from our regularly scheduled programming, walking through the introductory rites of the Mass, to discuss music generally. We're going to be doing kind of a part one, part two thing. Uh, I'll give you part one today and part two next week. So what is the purpose of sacred music in the Latin rite? Maybe you know, maybe you think you know, maybe you have no idea. And I hope to give the basics of what the church offers. Now, again, I'm not interested in giving you my opinion or the opinions of others at this time. What, what does the church say is sacred music? I think it's worth giving a decent chunk of time here to get into that a bit. Well, in January of 2019, Archbishop Alexander Sample of the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon wrote a pastoral letter on sacred music and divine worship entitled, Sing to the Lord a New Song. 
And it's a brilliantly written synthesis of the church's perennial teachings on music in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. And uh, I posted a link to the original letter in the show notes, so, so check that out for sure. I highly recommend that any person involved in the ministry of music in a Latin rite Catholic Church give it a read. It's highly worth it. So quoting St. Augustine, Archbishop Sample reminds us that singing is an expression of joy and of love. When the people of God gather, we sing praises to God. To lose the great 2,000-year tradition of sacred music in the church would really be a tragedy. In fact, as Archbishop Sample says, the beauty, dignity, and prayerfulness of the Mass depend to a large extent on the music that accompanies the liturgical action. And speaking of, of language, form, and genre, Pope Francis said a few years ago that at times a certain mediocrity superficiality, a banality have prevailed to the detriment of the beauty and intensity of liturgical celebrations. The Archbishop alludes to the fact that there's been a certain confusion about sacred music in the past decades, and that a rediscovery of the tradition of the church will constitute for some a change. And he, he says this, he says, change can be difficult, but this can also be an exciting time of rediscovering the spirit of the liturgy and exploring new horizons of sacred music. See, since the time of the apostles, singing has not been an addendum to the worship of God. It's integral. Singing is an art form that takes its life and purpose from the sacred liturgy and is part of its very structure. The Second Vatican Council reiterates this in the document on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. It says, The musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than that of any other art. The main reason for this preeminence is that as sacred song unites to the words, it forms a necessary or integral part of the solemn liturgy. And if this is the case, and it is, then it seems unfitting that the norm in the United States at least is to, as the Archbishop puts it, tack on four songs, right? the opening hymn, the offertory hymn, communion hymn, and recessional hymn, along with the sung ordinary of the Mass, the Gloria, the Sanctus, etc. We must come to see that, the Archbishop says, since sacred music is integral to the Mass, the role of sacred music is to help us sing and pray the texts of the Mass itself, not just ornament it. The Church solemnly teaches us then that the very purpose of sacred music is twofold. As a side note, this is the, the purpose of the Mass, right? The glorification of God, the glory of God, and the sanctification of the faithful. This understanding of the essential nature and purpose of sacred music must direct and inform everything else that is said about it. And so what is sacred music? What do we have? Well, there's three essential qualities of sacred music that flow from its nature and purpose. Sanctity, beauty, and universality. So first, that first one, sanctity. What is that? Sacred music has sanctity because it is holy. It must be free of profanity in its words, themes, and the manner in which it is delivered. And to be holy is to be set apart. Common secular music has no place in the worship of God in the liturgy. 
And when I say profanity, I don't mean like bad words. I mean, the difference between sacred and profane, right? The things that are made for liturgy and worship and the things that are made for the world. And those profane things might be fine in a secular context. Uh, but those, it needs to, uh, sacred music that is, that is holy needs to be free of this profane words, themes, and the manner in which it is delivered. Secondly, the second quality, beauty. Liturgical and sacred music can give people a glimpse of the beauty of heaven, according to Pope Francis. Our liturgies must seek to be transcendent. They can be nothing compared to the glory of heaven, but the beauty of sacred music can help us enter into the foretaste of the heavenly reality. And then finally, universality. The composition of sacred music of any culture must be recognized as having a sacred character. As a universal principle, holiness transcends every individual culture. In other words, not every form or style of music is capable of being rendered suitable for the Mass. Now, when we look at the treasury of the church's sacred music, it spans centuries. Whether it's ancient or modern, sacred music must have the same character of sanctity, beauty, and universality. For example, there's Gregorian chant, which the Second Vatican Council gave pride of place in sacred music in the Roman liturgy. And this has been reinforced by every pontiff since, including Pope Francis most recently. In terms of full conscious active participation in the laity in the liturgy, uh, Pope Pius XI says this. So in the early 1900s, he says, In order that the faithful may more actively participate in divine worship, let them be led once more to sing the Gregorian chant so far as it belongs to them to take part in it. The Second Vatican Council also suggests that steps should be taken so that the faithful may also be able to say or sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertains to them. And so this is referring to the Kyrie, which is, as we know, actually in Greek, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, the Mysterium Fidei, the Pater Noster, and the Agnus Dei. And echoing the Second Vatican Council, Pope Benedict XVI said, While respecting various styles and different and highly praiseworthy traditions, I desire, in accordance with the request advanced by the Synod Fathers, that is the Second Vatican Council, that Gregorian chant be suitably esteemed and employed as the chant proper to the Roman liturgy. And there's other kinds of sacred music in the church than just Gregorian chant. For example, polyphony has a venerable tradition in the church, such as the compositions of Palestrina, Talus, and Allegri. There is also a vast body of sacred music composed for the people, such as hymnody, psalmody, in different mass settings in Latin or in the vernacular. In contrast to sacred music is secular music. Secular music is not sanctified, necessarily beautiful, or universal. And this doesn't just pertain to the lyrics. It's not just about profanity in the lyrics or profane rather than secular. There's a great many songs being written and utilized at mass in the last decades, which are secular in their manner of being played. So like a folk style or rock style or country style or their ambiguous lyrical content. Right? Are we singing to Jesus or are we singing to uh, our bride? Right. Archbishop Sample quotes Pope Benedict XVI in saying this. He says, as far as the liturgy is concerned, 
We cannot say that one song is as good as another. Generic improvisation or the introduction of musical genres which fail to respect the meaning of the liturgy should be avoided. As an element of the liturgy, songs should be well integrated into the overall celebration. Consequently, everything, text, music, execution, ought to correspond to the meaning of the mystery being celebrated, the structure of the rite, and the liturgical seasons. Now, there's a lot more to say on music and full conscious and actual participation in the Mass, but I'm going to hold off on that until next week uh, for time reasons. And otherwise, this week will go far over an hour, and I don't want that to happen. So make sure to come back next week for the exciting conclusion to this digression on sacred music. All right. So the Curie is done. The uh, Gloria is finished. And now what's left in the introductory rites? Well, we have one part left, the collect. Uh, And it looks just like the English word collect. And that's really what the priest is doing, right? The celebrant invites those gathered to pray and then proclaims the prescribed prayer for the day from the Roman Missal called the collect. And the collect literally collects the prayers of the people and the priest offers these prayers to God. The collect also disposes the hearts of those present to be made ready to hear the word of God proclaimed in the following part of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word. And as we'll see next week when we talk about the mystical body of Christ, we need a priest to do this properly. In his priesthood, the priest is acting in the person of Christ, the head of his body, at Holy Mass. Only he can collect up the prayers of the members of the body of Christ and offer them by his consecration to God the Father in the Spirit. And so with the collect, the introductory rites are concluded. And whether we're celebrating the Holy Mass by the 1962 Missal or the 1970 Missal, the collect ends the beginning prayers of the Mass, which prepare us for the readings. Next week, we'll be diving into the next part of the Mass, known in our current Missal as the Liturgy of the Word. And we'll be also looking closer at the theology of the mystical body of Christ. We'll be looking a bit closer at sacred music and mass. And we'll walk through the progression of the readings and the homily. We'll be learning more about the profession of faith and the universal prayer. And we'll also look at the difference between sacraments and sacramentals. Uh, Just another topic I wanted to cover. And I'm certain there'll be a few other side roads to investigate along the way. And so thank you for joining us for this week, session two, uh, the mass, where, when, and who. And I look forward to being with you again next week as we continue to learn more about praying the mass. The more we understand about the sacred liturgy, the more we can dive into the richness of what God is doing and what we are getting to take part in. Because remember, the mass is the self-offering of the Son to the Father and the Spirit in which we are invited to take part for the glorification of God and the sanctification of man. So thank you for being with us. If you've enjoyed this, please share it with your friends and family on social media. Um, invite a friend to come with you next week uh, in person to St. John Paul II Catholic High School at six o'clock in Avondale, room 211. Uh, email me ahead of time so that I know you're on your way. And uh, 
I think that's all we got for today. So thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to have you with us. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.